Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Taking a walk with Buzz Knight. Hey, Buzz. Hey, Larry. What's up? Uh, It's great to be with you here in uh, Washington Square Park on what is uh, sort of an overcast, but fortunately not raining day Uh, in uh, really the heart of Greenwich Village. Uh, So... We are right in the middle of New York University, NYU. And this is my 10th year at NYU. I'm I'm a professor here, and I'm the head of the music business programs here. We have an undergraduate music business program where people get a Bachelor of Music degree with a concentration in music business. And we have a graduate program, a a two-year master's program. Both of those programs graduate people who go out into the world and, like no kidding, make a dent in the universe, in the music universe, either as uh, performers or as executives or as entrepreneurs in really, or even as educators in every sort of music context that we can think of, whether that's a digital music service or a major or independent record company or a music publisher, uh, in the live music business, at the major talent agencies or at the Live Nations and AEGs of the world, in the performing rights organizations, at the digital music services, at, at every digital music service, you know, Spotify and Apple Music and Pandora and so on. And one of the super interesting things for me. There's so much that's interesting about what I get to do every day, but one of the most interesting things to me about this community in particular is how global it is, how totally international it is. About a third of our undergrad students are from outside the United States. The rest of them are from all over the country. In our graduate program, about half of them are from outside the United States, and they are from everywhere. 
And so they come here to learn from us. I think, you know, I'll, I'll share with you, don't tell anybody, that I and maybe some of my colleagues come here to learn from them. And I learn as much from them as they learn from us. Well, let's take a walk, Larry. All right. Well, you know, I was opining, first of all, before I came to see you a little bit. I'm very grateful for my time that uh, was at the University of Dayton studying communications. So really no regrets to speak of. But my opining came in the form that I was thinking, my God, if I, if I knew of a Larry Miller at NYU when I was deciding places to go, I wish I had that consideration because I was right down the road in Stanford, Connecticut. It was a hop, skip, and a jump. But anyway, that's my opining. Well, I was also a little baby radio DJ back then, as as you were. By the way, did you work at WTUE back then? Well, what was your Dayton radio station? VUD. Yeah, that was the university station. Yeah. The radio station. All right. And look, I mean, when we were college age... Uh, Greenwich Village was uh, a very different place than it is now. NYU was a vastly different place than you know than it is today, and so was the music industry, and and so were the ways that people who were musically inclined or musically interested or even musically obsessed got to interact with artists and, you know, the, the music industry proper. And it, was, uh, it feels like several eons ago. Well, it might have been, but no. that's okay. So, um, okay, did you meet Taylor Swift when she was at NYU's <laughs> graduation, first of all? Everyone wants to know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, an- the answer to that is, is no. Oh. And so, you know, NYU is, is a big place. I yeah. mean, it's a school of 60,000 students and a bunch of different schools within the university. Uh, NYU commencement, the big commencement thing is at Yankee Stadium oh. every year, at every non-COVID year, that is. Yeah. And, um, and as uh, I think everyone on the internet discovered, Taylor was the graduation speaker at, at commencement at Yankee Stadium this year. And for one day, Taylor and NYU owned the internet. But uh, on that day, I was watching it on Zoom, not actually at Yankee Stadium. I stayed home, i got to say, this year. But uh, my academic program in my department are at the Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development, where the Music and Performing Arts Professions Department is a really big department uh, within Steinhardt, and really by itself, the size of a 1,600-person college. Uh, And the Steinhardt graduation is at Radio City. And that's the place where we announce the names of all the graduates, and it's our practice to seat the faculty on the stage and, you know, greet our students as they come across the stage. And so I was very glad to be back on the stage at Radio City this year uh, in person to do Steinhardt graduation. So Yankee Stadium and Taylor, no. Radio City, yes. Batting fourth. <laughs> Taylor, Taylor. Swift. Swift. Yes. Swift. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, one of my favorite things about uh, the podcast is is meeting new folks, 
but also the reconnection with folks that you've known for a while. And as I was thinking about our history, and there's other people that I've interviewed on the podcast, the history is, um, I can't remember where it actually began, coincidentally. Do you know? Because I've, I've got a few pockets of our history but help me out. I'm going to guess. <laughs> that and it's not a bad thing. I'm going to guess that, well, should I say a year? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> I think that the year was probably around 1984. Uh, I think the place was, at least in terms of the first time we'd met in person, was at uh, I-95, WRKI, Brookfield, or whatever yeah. place you were yeah, in, uh, 95. Okay. Yeah. The rock radio station in Connecticut that I think you were the program director of then. And I was working at The Source, which was NBC's rock radio network. And um, I think we met during that first year. That sounds right. And then subsequently, like you went to some amazingly uh, entrepreneurial places and independent places in your yep. career, and yep. we like talking about entrepreneurs and independence. What was after the source for you? Right. So, uh, at the time, uh, General Electric Company, shout out to GE, <laughs> uh, had uh, had bought NBC from RCA, which was the company that founded. NBC. And uh, GE decided in the late 80s to, uh, to spin off the radio division. And I did a few other radio things. Some of them were more entrepreneurial than others. I, I ran a joint <laughs> venture between Don Kirshner in an ad agency, and we produced and distributed uh, you know, syndicated programming that radio stations would air. And my last daily job in radio was at a New York radio station, uh, CD 101.9, the smooth jazz radio station at the time, was owned by the Tribune Company. Uh, Before I went to NBC, I had originally come to New York to help start Z100, the pop radio station that is still a pretty popular uh, radio station, as I understand it. And, uh, but my last daily radio gig was at CD 101.9 in New York. And after that, and actually before that ended, I had decided that I was um, missing something in my own educational um, you know, toolkit. There was stuff that I wanted to know about that I looked around and I noticed that Certain other people whose career trajectories I admired had had done some of those things. They'd either picked it up along the way in their early work experiences, or they'd gone to school for it. Who were some of those people, too? Okay, so I was really super, super lucky at, uh, at NBC. And I had uh, a couple of great mentors. I mean, really, really great mentors. And um, I always say to students today when uh, they are looking for advice about internships, because, of course, internships are, I'm going to say, an essential um, on-ramp to working today in not just the music industry, broadly defined, but in any business. I say, go hire yourself the best mentor that you can find. 
separate from whatever the name of the company looks like on your resume. Go find yourself the best mentor that you can get. And I was lucky, and I had a couple really early on. Um, one of them was uh, a guy named Randy Bongarden, who was the president of NBC Radio when I was there. And we were talking one day, and the conversation went something like, geez, you know, I see how much you love um, this radio stuff that we do. And he could see that I was sort of torn at that point between uh, being talent and being on the business side. And he said, you know, let me give you a word of advice. Uh, he had gone to Columbia Business School. And he said, in not quite so many words, that there is stuff that you would get that you don't currently have if you went to business school, whether it was Columbia or someplace else. And so, although I didn't do it straight away, and maybe, you know, my trajectory might have looked a little different if I had, but some years later, uh, I, uh, I took Randy's advice. And I went to Columbia. And when I think back at the, like, transformative inflection points in my career uh, and just in my life, I think about things like meeting my wife and the birth of my kids, but I also think about the year that I decided to run the New York Marathon based on no evidence that I could even run around the block, which I did once and only once, and it was amazing. The other was my decision to go to business school, which gave me a new lens through which to view the world. Now, I had many friends and colleagues in business school who were already working in sort of, you know, traditional finance kinds of roles, in banking or in consulting. And many of them were there to kind of get their card punched. You know, they were really there for the degree. Certainly, I wanted the degree. But what I got was just a dramatically new, flexible, powerful way of thinking about fundamental things like risk and reward, measuring growth. And although I've taken a lot of bets in my life and in my career, um, some, of, some of them have worked out great. Others of them have worked out, you know, less great. But I really got an understanding for myself about how to navigate in a world that is inherently risky, where there is no such thing as perfect information. And, uh, and that, as much as anything else, is what I got from business school. But I digress. But that was a supercharging <laughs> moment, and I think... Uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, it really fueled also uh, your independent thinking about 
uh, the way you looked at business and probably the world. It's true, and my timing was good because uh, I finished business school in 1994, which was at the beginning of the commercial internet. I mean, it was a time when, you know, major publications, when they were referring to the internet, they spelled it with a capital I, and they needed to explain what it was. The global network of networks, blah, 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 World Wide Web, blah, 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 blah. That's when I was sort of coming on the scene. And when I came out of business school, I got a job working in a strategy consulting firm, as, as many people do. And we had a session soon after I got there that was a you know, planning meeting for how we were, as a practice group, going to attack the next year. And, you know, it was a room full of pretty smart people who I was working with, uh, most of them much smarter than me. And, uh, and somebody asked, well, who can, uh, you know, leverage what we do and be, you know, credible and maybe even know a couple of people in the music industry? Given that in 1994, 1995, 1996, there were some super early responsible experiments happening, some, well, responsible, some less responsible, that were, at the time, just about observing and understanding that given the limited bandwidth that there was in the world for people to access the Internet, that it was possible to send sound over this thing. You remember progressive networks, the you know the what real networks was called before it sure. was that. Uh, you probably remember some of the earliest download experiments that that happened uh, at major labels, at independent labels. There were unsigned artists that were uh, smashing out MP3s and at least putting them out there as a form of promotion. Nothing was being monetized yet, and this was almost 10 years before the introduction of the iTunes Music Store, let alone Spotify. And so you could tell that if you had an advantage in understanding the technology, but even the vocabulary around the technology of music creation and distribution, that you might have a competitive advantage, not just as a consultant in the space, but if you were a company like any record company or music publisher was, or even broadcaster at that point, uh, who needed to um, get their own learning, their own, not just something that they read in a in a book or on a website someplace, but actually have tried some things and maybe had some successes and failures. And I still contend that you can learn from both. But from the failures, we tell students, fail fast. But they're, right. they're all learnings, yeah. And they're, all, and they're all learnings. And in fact, when I think about uh, my time in the, in the radio business, I learned, and I'll bet you did too, 
from some of the very smartest and some of the very dumbest people I've ever, ever met. Well, this is true. Um, and the dumb ones I'll probably leave out. And the smart ones uh, we're always willing to, to probably talk about. Yeah, and even, and even name them. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the dumb ones I tend to leave out just yeah. because I don't know if it's worthy of the bandwidth. But uh, we can learn from them, too. Definitely. Anyway, so um, I ended up getting hired by a client, uh, and the client was AT&T Labs. And at the time, uh, AT&T had been, uh, had been broken up. And what had been uh, AT&T Bell Laboratories was split in half between what became Lucent, the equipment manufacturer, and what remained as AT&T. And much of AT&T Labs' research, which retained many of the patents that AT&T had, was, uh, was being, you know, newly reconstituted. And literally in my first week at, uh, at AT&T, I, uh, I met a guy uh, named Howie Singer, who is still my friend, uh, and in fact, still he teaches with me now at NYU. And Howie had been uh, a, uh, a really a lifer at AT&T and had a bunch of patents, and he had a job in the labs that was really about sort of translating soft technology and helping turn it into products, into commercial products. And Howie and I met at a meeting, and we were sort of kindred spirits from, you know, from the very beginning. And at this meeting, Howie had a device that he was showing everybody that was about the size of a, um, of a shoebox. And it didn't look like much. I mean, it looked like a uh, sort of a Heathkit science project. <laughs> If you maybe you had one of those Heathkit radios that you you know from uh, from you know back as a kid from maybe when you were eight or ten. Years well, my older. problem with it is I bought it already uh, put together, so because I didn't really know how to fuss with things like that. But yes, All right. <laughs> so uh, so Howie's thing was built was built as a uh, as a demonstration of technology that AT and T had to make super high-quality um, music into a really small file. So it was a particular approach to audio compression, which today is part of AAC, uh, one of the uh, you know, high-bit audio compression formats that, uh, that is used in, you know, in much of the world and many of the services that we don't even think about today. It's just part of the plumbing. Uh, but he had this device that would play music that didn't go on a CD or any other kind of a shiny thing that spins. It sat on a PCM CIA card that was like, you know, the size of a business card that had a bunch of chips in it. And a single card could hold one or two songs at the time. And... That he had built this portable reader that could play music that was on this solid state card, and you could shake it 
and still hear it, and it wouldn't skip. Wow. And it sounded amazing. And it blew my mind. I was going to say, yeah, you had to have. It blew my mind. I mean, if you were... Uh, you know, growing up in the age when we did, and we lived through various formats of, you know, music storage, music consumption, music purchase. We lived through all of it, right? From, you know, from radio to, uh, you know, you know, seven-inch forty-fives and twelve-inch thirty-three and a third RPM records, eight tracks, of course, the cassette time. And uh, and then the whole CD period, and we had, you know, disc mans that we walked around with, and we had cassette players in our cars. And you probably bet when you were in high school, I'll bet you had an eight-track player, you know, screwed into the bottom of your dashboard. Possibly <laughs> next, next to the FM converter. Yeah, next to the FM converter. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had, oh I had one God. of those too. What relics? Yeah. <laughs> but, it's like the extent that we would go to to get music that sounded even marginally better uh, than, you know, what came before it. And so I saw this device that Howie had, and I was all in, like, from that second. Was it? So Howie and I became partners in um, um, sort of a skunk works uh, science project that we got some money from AT&T Labs and the major music companies to develop. And that was called A2B Music, AT&T A2B Music, which was one of the forerunners of secure digital distribution of music on the Internet, which by, uh, I forget what year, sometime in the late 90s, we spun the A2B Music team out of... Uh, AT&T Labs and merged it with another company that in those sort of heady internet one years where there were so many startups that were you know getting funded some of them were conducting more responsible experiments than others one of those companies was a company called Reciprocal which you may remember that uh, provided a service for music companies and also movie companies and also, you know, book publishers that allowed for secure digital distribution of their stuff um, without um, being didactic about or without requiring a certain sort of rights framework or underlying technology for the way that the music was compressed or for the way that the rules were going to be embedded into that digital file describing how that music might be able to be shared, for example, mm -hmm. or resold. So we went to Reciprocal and uh, a couple of years later, Reciprocal was sold to Microsoft and that was a really fun time uh, during that reciprocal, uh, you know, period. Uh, we were on track to go public uh, in March of 2000 when the market crashed and the, uh, the dot-com bubble burst in Internet One. And not too long after that, 9-11 um, happened right over there. And right behind those buildings that we are looking at now, 
uh, is where the twin towers of the World Trade Center used to stick up. And I was in New York on that day, not here in Washington Square, but close to here. And it is a day that uh, we will never forget. And in the weeks and months after 9-11, I started looking for a, a music deal to either start with partners or invest in. I mean, it was a dark time in New York. The, uh, the air was out of the sort of Internet One balloon, sort of like Web3 is today. Maybe we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. And I thought, at the time I was, um, I don't know, still in my 30s. And so I was not a kid. And I had spent my whole career in and around music, in radio and in music distribution technology and as a consultant who was lucky enough to have a front row seat at much of the sort of transformative deal-making that had happened around the consolidation of the music industry that sort of drove the formation of the companies that are today's major music companies. And yet, the thing that still motivated me was the music. And I thought, maybe it's time to put my money where my mouth is and see if I'm any good at that. Signing artists and songwriters and starting a company. So we started a company called Or Music, O-R Music. Our distributor was Sony. And I was in business. We were signing artists and songwriters. Uh, I had a uh, I had a partner, and I'll tell you that the first three things that we put out were not exactly sensational hit records. Um, it was funny. I remember there was somebody, uh, there was a really smart guy who was working for Sony at the time for their distribution company, who looked at my business plan. And he said, you know, this is a really good financial model. He said, <laughs> except that, you know, there's a really good chance that you're probably not going to sell an average of the equivalent of 25,000 albums per project. You're probably going to sell less than that. And I said, really? What's, what's the lowest number that I should be forecasting? He said, well, on some projects, it's possible to have to write off your whole investment and sell zero. Actually, uh, there was a project that was one of our first two where I learned that you can actually sell less than zero copies. <laughs> <laughs> you can actually sell a negative number of records that you, at the time, you know, manufacture and put out there because at the time, although we were still straddling the beginning of the digital music business, you know. But you, <laughs> in that venture, yeah. did, I might say, do what most people never do 
and that is you found a needle in a haystack with a hit. <laughs> we did. We had a hit. So uh, our first two records uh, didn't work out great. The third one was a Tower of Power record, uh, which did uh, about what we thought it would. Tower of Power, of course, from Oakland, California. For me, the greatest funk band in the history of the world. Uh, uh, still out there touring. Go see him if you ever get a chance. And uh, that record did about what we thought it would, and that gave us a chance to breathe for a minute. And then we, uh, we put out that needle in a haystack, and that was a band called Los Lonely Boys, uh, which was a band that we discovered or really was shopped to us in, like, the first week that we were open as a company. And at the time, uh, Los Lonely Boys, who were from, actually, they were from San Angelo, Texas. They are still managed today by the, by the brilliant and, um, and fabulous and honest and knowledgeable manager, still based oh, okay. in Austin, um, Kevin Womack. And Kevin, at the time, had Los Lonely Boys signed in a production deal to Willie Nelson's company. And they had made a record uh, that they were looking for a distribution deal on. So they were shopping what they thought was going to be a, just a finished record, get somebody to put it out. And we heard the record, and we thought, there's really something here. Let's go see them. So we called up Kevin. And we were on a plane to Austin the next day because they had a gig that night at a club that no longer exists in Austin. It was a big club. Actually, it was a laughably big club. Like We were there and maybe eight other people were at, were at this club. And Los Holy Boys came out and they just tore the roof off. They played as if they were playing Madison Square Garden. It was, up until that time, the most amazing thing I had ever seen in my life. And, I mean, they are three Texican brothers, the Garza brothers from San Angelo. They have that tight vocal harmony, sort of like the Everly brothers, uh, that only, you know, real brothers, you know, can have. And they could play like crazy. And in fact, Henry Garza, the guitar player, is, you know, in Rolling Stone's, you know, greatest rock guitar players of all time. And the song in particular <laughs> that uh, was the big one was Heaven. Was Heaven. Yeah. I believe, by the way, uh, the um, at the time I was at Greater Media, and, uh, well, I would be there in 2002. Uh, yep. And they played the uh, Earthfest uh, concert that WBOS uh, put on somewhere, I would think, a few years after that. It was not at the moment of the, the hit. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a little after that. Yeah. But it was terrific. It was, they were, they were a, I'm sure still are, charismatic band. And just like you said, that, that tight-knit. Uh, hey, hi, Michael. Say hi to Michael Dorf hey, over there. Hey, Michael. How are you? 
Yeah, later. <laughs> He's on the phone. We're recording a podcast. So, <laughs> Michael Dorf is my friend who uh, is the owner of City Winery. Oh, yeah. All the city wineries. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love that. Um, I love that. So, um, so anyway, the thing about Los Only Boys, I mean, it sure was great having a, you know, multi-million selling hit record. Uh, but we were also the publisher of Lost Lonely Boys, and we came down the learning curve on publishing very, very, very fast. And I've been a little bit obsessed about music rights and about publishing in particular ever since. Well, yeah, and I'm glad that uh, you, you did that beautiful transition to that uh, topic. So um, I have a number of things, state of the state, I'd love to uh, have you speak about um, first of all speak about the state of, of rights when it comes to um, you know publishing when it comes to what's going on certainly between uh, radio and uh, you know the, the the publishers so what what's the face of this right now as you Oof. look at it it's a very I know that's that's a deep that's a deep one, but uh, how do you grade it? Okay, so let's do radio and the publishers, and then let's do radio and the record companies. Fair. All right. First, let's start with um, how songwriters get paid in the United States. It's a little different in other territories around the world. If you're a songwriter who is not a performer as well, then you write songs either by yourself or with others and other people record your songs and put them out. Every song that you hear on the radio, on the internet, or, or in any other mode of music discovery and listening that there is, with or without video, has two different copyrights in it. There's the copyright in the sound recording of the song. That makes sense, and that's pretty easy to wrap your head around. And usually, in the United States, the copyright in the sound recording of the song is the province of the record company, or if it is a self-financed independent performer who might also be a writer, you know, they can own that copyright in the sound recording, certainly. Separate from the copyright in the sound recording of the song, there's the copyright in the song itself, the underlying musical composition. The copyright in the underlying musical composition, the song itself, in U.S. law and in the laws of other countries, over 160 countries around the world, uh, is, uh, is old and it's codified. And if you think about it, there was a sheet music business long before there was a sound recording business. And most people, when they think about the music publishing business, for if you're a civilian, if I say music publishing, you might think, 
Oh, you mean the sheet music that was in the piano bench that we had in the house when we were growing up. That's music publishing, right? And the answer is, and my response is, yes, that is a, a form of music publishing. But today, sheet music revenue for music publishers and songwriters is under 1% of the revenue that they get. So let's talk about the other 99% of the revenue that songwriters and music publishers get. So when a song is created, yes, I mean, you can make a print version of it, but you can license the song for, um, for recording and for distribution. And those particular rights are usually embedded in what is today called a mechanical royalty, which is not something that concerns radio, much of radio, at least uh, AM, FM radio. But it very much does concern digital music services, the mechanical right. And maybe we can come back to that in a minute. Then there is the right to public performance. And that is the right to license the entities, including all of radio, who want to publicly perform and transmit That's that underlying musical composition that, of course, when you hear it on the radio, is embedded with a sound recording. So there is, so far we've talked about the mechanical right, and we've talked about the public performance right, and the third major segment of revenue for songwriters and music publishers is sync or synchronization, which some of your listeners may have heard of, and you might imagine that there is a, a separate right that is not statutory. In other words, there is no law describing uh, how much a user would have to pay or how much a writer or a publisher would get paid for using a piece of music in fixed time synchronized to a TV show or a movie or an ad. So any time music is in a movie or a TV show or even a YouTube video, there needs to be a sync license on the one hand to allow the producers of the thing to synchronize that song into their movie or TV show or whatever it is. And then separately, when that thing is played in, say, movie theaters around the world, outside the United States, or played on television or cable or streamed by Netflix or anybody else, there is a public performance uh, uh, right and royalty that accrue to their benefit as well. So we've talked about mechanicals, we've talked about public performance, which is not just for radio, but also for TV and to some extent digital music services. We've talked about sync or synchronization, and we've even touched on sheet music, which I sort of put into the bucket called other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Other, by the way, might also contain stuff like uh, if you ever opened up a greeting card and a little dinky-sounding melody of a song started playing, they need a license for that, too, from the, you know, the music publisher right. on, on behalf of the songwriter. So that's publishing. Um, 
When a record company uses a song, they need to pay the publisher and the songwriter a mechanical royalty for the use of that song in the sound recording that they are about to make or have made, but before they release it. That's called a mechanical, by the way, because in the years immediately before 1909, the music publishers in the United States and uh, in, in UK and throughout Europe were all up in arms because there was a growing middle class and one of the um, um, sort of aspirational things to have as a middle class family was a piano. And player pianos were a fantastic thing to have. And so player pianos were proliferating and the things that you need to make a player piano play were, you know, piano rolls, songs that were, you know, mechanically uh, etched into a, you know, player piano roll. These, and this is, you know, separate from the wax cylinders that were the earliest days of sound recording. Yep. But you needed um, this mechanical thing in order for your player piano to work. And what was happening was that there were uh, a large number of, um, let's just say, unethical, um, you know, business people who were using music that wasn't theirs in creating pl player piano rolls and, um, and selling them without a license. And in the Copyright Act of 1909 is when the mechanical license and the mechanical right was first codified in U.S. copyright law. Soon thereafter, of course, you needed to have record companies pay a mechanical rate for the use of the song and making a sound recording of that song. And so this is sort of a long way to go um, to talk about the world that we have inherited today when it comes to the understanding and even explanation of music rights. Because the fact is, if we were inventing the business for the business that exists today, it would never look the way that it looks right right now. Yeah. Like, not in a million years. Right. But um, you asked about radio and publishing and radio and the record business. And so I will, I will tell you that it might surprise at least some of your listeners that when commercial radio in the United States, or non-commercial radio, plays a piece of music that you hear, that songwriters and music publishers get paid something. And maybe you've heard of uh, the performing rights organizations ASCAP and BMI and CSAC, and there's another company called Global Music Rights that operates now in the United States, that license music on behalf of publishers and songwriters to the radio industry so that radio stations can play pretty much whatever they want uh, if they have a blanket license from those performing rights organizations. And the writers and songwriters get paid. But the United States is the only country on earth 
with advanced intellectual property laws that has an exemption for the sound recording, which is maybe a too technical way of saying, and record companies and performers get nothing. Absolutely zero. So writers and publishers get paid from radio performance. It's a very, very small, low single-digit percentage of revenue that radio stations get, and and a very small fixed fee for non-commercial stations. But record companies get, uh, and, and performers get zero. And of course, there is uh, new uh, legislation underway that will hopefully remedy that. But it may not, and I know it wouldn't surprise you, Buzz, but it wouldn't surprise, I don't think, uh, even a casual listener, that the broadcaster's lobby has been virulently against changing the exemption because uh, in all likelihood, at least in their view, uh, it would cost them more than they are currently paying for the music that they play. By the way, if you were just a quick aside here on this point, businesses have, uh, in accounting terms, a cost of goods sold, right? It costs something to make the products that we buy and the services that we consume. Radio's cost of goods sold is, it's not zero, but it is lower than literally any other business that you can think of. It's lower than the software business. It's lower than the chemicals business. It's lower than the pharmaceutical business. It's lower than pretty much anything. Now, radio certainly has other costs, right? Rent, payroll, stuff like that. But uh, radio pays almost nothing for the music that it plays. They do pay songwriters and music publishers. They do not pay anything in the United States. The world's largest radio market and the world's largest um, you know, music market for the music that they play. And I hope that I live long enough to see that change. It has been a jihad of mine uh, for my entire working life that just struck me as being inherently unfair. That maybe when you and I were very young uh, and the record industry was just printing money uh, from you know the vinyl business and the CD business, uh, that they didn't care so much about... Uh, then about necessarily getting paid, but they sure do now, especially now that radio's influence has waned in the way that uh, I believe it has. Uh, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, what you're feeling. How do you feel about that? There's no doubt that it's, it's waned. Um, it still means a lot when it comes to certain great brands you mentioned Z100 earlier yeah um, and there's there's others but then when you get to mid-pack and below it's incredibly waned 
and I'm deeply concerned about it. As someone who came out of the business, mm. who still loves the business, mm. there's no millennial or Gen Z strategy whatsoever. Uh, the commercial load problem has never been even seriously thought of. And so... You mean there are too many commercials? Yeah. You, should, you many, should tell somebody on the radio business oh, about Oh, I that. have tried. Hello, testing, <laughs> testing. I have tried. So I'm deeply concerned uh, about it, and I appreciate your um, explanation of it because it is complicated. I know you have served uh, and done work around the, co- you know, the uh, Copyright Royalty Board. Yeah. I did the same sort of on the side of uh, the, the industry, mm-hmm. really. Um, didn't have to go into the uh, uh, the court, if you will. My, right. they, they accepted my deposition. Uh-huh. Good. <laughs> um, that, that saved you a couple of days. It, out of it, your life. it did, and you know, it was it was the look. Localism and, and radio is an important attribute, and still remains an important attribute, um, especially when you know difficult things happen in, in markets and communities. Um, but I'm deeply concerned, so uh, I, I have gone on the record and will continue to go on the record with that with that concern for sure. So, um, I mean, I'm in, I'm in front, like, I don't teach classes in the summer. You know, that's just my choice. You know, but uh, during the rest of the year, I'm in front of rooms of young people, and. When I ask them if they listen to the radio, they either give me uh, a blank look or uh, they say, uh, yeah, you know, they listen. Uh, They listen to uh, Pandora or when they're in, you know, mom or dad's car, maybe Sirius XM or perhaps the AM FM radio station that they grew up with. But it wouldn't be their choice. By and large, now there are a handful of students who uh, and other young people who aren't students who do still listen to radio. Look at it; super convenient. Still, it's super, super, super convenient. And radio, pop radio, in particular, um, is still an important factor in validating the, the biggest hits. Would you agree? I would agree. I would agree. And, and, and um, validate's a good word because it's generally not the initial form of discovery. It is a form of discovery, but really it is more of a form of validation. That, I think that's well, that's well put. Um, so, um, Larry, as we wind down here um, for our walk at... Uh, the colorful Washington Square Park. I know you. That fountain is awesome over there, isn't oh it? Oh my God! Yeah, it runs pretty much around the year. It's amazing. It's amazing. The smells too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of weed and, in the park. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are flowers. There are flowers uh, other kinds too. of flowers. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I know there's some uh, work you're doing on some boards. Can yeah. you talk about that? Yes. I think it's exciting. It's it's so cool. Thanks for asking. Um, for the last couple of years, I've been on the board of the Newport Festivals Foundation. That is the board of 
directors of the nonprofit that runs the Newport Jazz Festival and the Newport Folk Festival, which for me is um, a particular honor uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, my parents uh, went on one date that we know about after they uh, after they met. Um, my uh, my mother. Uh, passed uh, just in the last couple of years. My, my dad is still very much with us. He's 90, and I hope listening. And they went on a date uh, to in Boston, where they were from, to Storyville, which was uh, named for the New Orleans uh, Storyville. It was a club in Boston, in Old Copley Plaza, that was started by a young guy when he was still at Boston University, George Wien. George uh, went on to found the Newport uh, uh, Jazz Festival and later the Newport Folk Festival. And by the way, for more information on the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals, uh, when George passed away uh, just this past September, uh, on my podcast, the Musonomics podcast, we did a really special episode about George and Newport and what it was about him that really had him kind of write the map or like dig the well for how the modern, non-classical summer music festival ought to run. And it still runs that way. Anyway... Great, uh, and by the way, a labor of love on that episode. So. It, it, it was, thank you. Um, so uh, I went on the Newport board uh, a couple of years ago. I had a couple of other friends who were on it. I had known George uh, pretty much my whole adult life. And, uh, and he had become a really close family friend. And so it was a great honor for me to be on that board while George was still alive, along with, by the way, my friend Michael Dorf, who just walked oh, past yeah. us, you know, 45 minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah, Michael's on that board, too. And, um, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, the Newport Folk Festival, which uh, is the third weekend in July, and the Jazz Festival, which is the fourth weekend in July. So... Uh, those are now nonprofits, and they are they are run by just an incredible organization. You know, uh, Jay Sweet, the executive producer and head of the whole organization, which, by the way, is a super skinny organization. To produce these two events every year the way that they do is a miracle. Uh, it's a modern miracle. So we have the Newport Jazz and Folk Festivals. And just this week, I went on the board of the Louis Armstrong House Museum. Wow. This is the, uh, the house that Louis and his wife lived in uh, up until the time he died. It is in Corona, Queens. It is owned uh, by the, the city of New York and under the auspices of Queens College. But... It, has, uh, it houses the Louis Armstrong archive. Uh, there is an unbelievably dedicated and also super skinny staff that runs the Louis Armstrong House Museum, led by now you know another 
just spectacularly talented and dedicated uh, um, director uh, whose name is Regina Bain, and she is now, I think, in her second year as director. And she's fabulous. And coming up this fall, right across the street from the townhouse that Lewis lived in that houses the archive is a spectacular new $22 million building that's going to be an education and performance center right there, part of the Louis Armstrong House Museum that is for the community and for everyone. It is the result of a 20-year massive development project that is finally going to see the light of day. Now, I have a family reason for wanting to have gotten involved in uh, in the Armstrong House uh, that became much more pointed to me over this past year. And uh, my father-in-law, uh, Jerry Chazen, uh, who uh, passed away at age 94 in February, had been the chairman of that board. And although Jerry was a brilliant business person and a fantastic philanthropist and force for good in the world and was involved in many organizations, that the thing that he really cared most deeply about, with all due respect to Newport, <laughs> please forgive me, Newport people, <laughs> was the Louis Armstrong House Museum. And, uh, and so, uh, to honor him, I, I wanted to get more involved, and, uh, and I'm now officially more involved and will be for, I hope, a very long time. That's awesome. Well, I will say, every time I connect with you, I learn, and I learn more, and I get excited about the things that you're excited about, and uh, I can't thank you enough for, for taking a walk here today in uh, the colorful Washington Square Park, Larry. <laughs> thank you for having me, Buzz, and look, the future is bright. You know, we're lucky to be living through the era that we are now. Notwithstanding the individual complaints and, you know, the grievances that, you know, that many people have, rightly or wrongly, we are lucky to be living through this period of, of human history. And, uh, and uh, I do think that the, the future is bright, in particular for people who love and appreciate uh, music as a motivating force in their life. Well put. Thank you, Larry. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. 
Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.